Welcome to Conversations with the Marketplace, brought to you by the passionate practitioner consultants of Warbird Consulting Partners. Our conversations with the marketplace are designed to provide access to innovative and entrepreneurial financial leaders from across the country. We hope that by listening to their experiences, you might take away a few items that can shorten the learning curve, be easily implemented, and facilitate financial improvement at your organization. Our goal is to educate, entertain, offer new perspectives, and inspire you to take action. Without further delay, welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this special masterclass presentation brought to you by the Financial Advisory and Debt Management Practice Group at Warbird Consulting Partners. My name is Ryan Sprinkle, and welcome to this masterclass conversation with the marketplace. We want to thank you for entrusting us with your most valuable resource, your time. Our goal is to provide you with access to innovative and entrepreneurial financial leaders from across the country. It is our hope that by listening to their experiences, you might take away a few items that can shorten the learning curve, be easily implemented, and facilitate financial improvement at your organization. Warbird Consulting Partners is composed of passionate practitioner consultants. Our team has decades of experience performing every function within the financial management of hospitals and health systems. This seasoned experience allows us to relate to and empathize with the concerns, opportunities, and frustrations that hospital leaders and team members experience. Warbird's Financial Advisory and Debt Management Practice Group has worked with hospitals of every type and size. This diverse experience enables our practitioners to customize solutions that fit your culture, address your specific situations, and satisfy the needs of your various stakeholders. One of the benefits of working with hospitals from across the country is meeting skilled experts who are committed to providing the best advice, counsel, and strategies to healthcare organizations to ensure their financial viability and long-term growth. I'm thrilled to speak with two such persons today, David Cates and Amy Cobb-Curran of Chapman & Cutler. David is a partner and the co-practice group leader of Chapman's National Public and Health and Education Finance Department. His practice is focused on tax-exempt and taxable financings for nonprofit healthcare entities. He has worked as bond counsel, underwriter's counsel, issuer's counsel, borrower's counselor, restructuring counsel, and purchaser's counsel in both tax-exempt and taxable healthcare transactions. These transactions have entailed a wide variety of document structures, including multimodal transactions, embedded derivatives, forward commitments, and swaps. David has also represented providers of derivative products, guaranteed investment contracts, interest rate swaps, repurchase agreements, and forward delivery agreements. David is a frequent lecturer at national conferences on issues related to tax-exempt bond financings and bond compliance. David started his legal career at Chapman. Prior to rejoining Chapman in 2014, he practiced in the healthcare group at Jones Day. Amy is a partner and member of Chapman's National Public and Health and Education Finance Department and the Social Finance and Impact Investing Cross-Disciplinary Team. She joined the firm in 2014. Amy's practice focuses on tax-exempt conduit financings for nonprofit hospitals, healthcare systems, senior living facilities, continuing care retirement communities, universities, and infrastructure projects. 
She has served as bond counsel, underwriters counsel, and borrowers counsel in financings and related transactions and has structured negotiated, drafted, and implemented fixed rate, variable rate, multimodal, and put bond financing structures. More recently, Amy has drawn on her public finance experience in representing social service providers, investors, municipal entities, and intermediaries in pay-for-success financings for early childhood education, homelessness reduction, juvenile services, and recidivism reduction projects. In addition, Amy has advised clients regarding post-issuance compliance with both tax-related statutes and regulations and bond document covenants. Welcome, David and Amy. Thank you both very much for being here today with us. Thank you. Thank you. David, I'd like to start the conversation today, if I can, with you. I think our listeners know that many nonprofit hospitals routinely finance their capital project through bonds. You know, for these bond instruments or municipal securities, as they are also known, can you give our listeners a broad but brief overview of what laws govern the disclosure of information to investors? Uh, Certainly, Ryan, and thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here today. Bonds, which is really the the primary financing vehicle for a not-for-profit health system or health provider, is a security, as you mentioned, under under the federal securities laws. And securities are governed primarily by, by two different acts, the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Those two acts govern both the issuance of securities and then the sort of ongoing secondary markets as they relate to securities. Because the bonds are a security, they do fall within the definition of a security under both of those acts, and therefore those acts are applicable to the securities that we issue to the bonds. The bonds themselves, though, well, before I get to that, let me give a very 20,000-foot level overview. You know, the Securities Act of 33 requires the registration of securities if you want to issue them to the public markets or, frankly, to any investor. There are exceptions to those registration rules under the Securities Act of 1933 and and municipal securities for reasons we we won't get into too much detail, but those are exempt from registration under the the Securities Act of 1933, which means that the issuers of of municipal securities, including healthcare bonds, don't have to register them with the SEC. However, that's just the registration requirements. Municipal securities are subject to the anti-fraud provisions of the Securities Act of 1933 and also the Securities Act of 1934 when dealing with the secondary markets. This basically prohibits issuers and borrowers like hospitals from making any untrue statements of material facts or omitting to state material facts in connection with the issuance or, or sort of ongoing maintenance, if you will, of securities. And therefore, those anti-fraud provisions really are a lot of the focus of the bond issues that we enter into and making sure that we do not violate those anti-fraud provisions when speaking to the market. To further govern the municipal securities industry, the SEC established the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, also known as the MSRB, and also promulgated Rule 15C212 under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And Rule 15C212 requires that issuers and borrowers provide continuing disclosure to investors on an ongoing basis following the issuance of municipal securities. How we get there is 
under that rule is sort of a probably too much at this point. But you know, the SEC doesn't reg- regulate borrowers, right? Municipal entities and healthcare institutions directly, but they do so through Rule 15.2.2.12 and, and their regulation of underwriters. And so the underwriters will require are required to make sure that the borrowers, the health systems, enter into continuing disclosure agreements. And under those continuing disclosure agreements, the borrowers are required to supply annual financial and operating information, as well as the notices of certain events on the MSRB's EMA website. Those uh, continuing disclosure agreements often include the requirement to supply quarterly information as well. That's not a requirement of Rule 15C212, but it is a requirement of the market, and therefore it often gets put into the continuing disclosure agreements in addition to the annual filings that are required by Rule 15C212. The information supplied pursuant to Rule 15C212 is governed, as I mentioned before, by the anti-fraud provisions of the 1934 Act. In other words, it can't contain any untrue statements of material facts or omit to state material facts. So you're probably seeing a very ongoing theme here, and, and that is that while we are not required to register under the Securities Act of 1933, we do need to be careful in the regulatory framework of making statement, fraudulent statements to the market, whether you're doing so as part of an offering or as part of your ongoing continuing disclosure. I understand how the legal landscape that you just described applies to those regular disclosures of financial and operating information. And those regular disclosures, I think you just discussed, whether it's an annual audit, quarterly financial or operating statistics that dis- dis- get disclosed, you know, those are posted on a website that, you know, many of us refer to just by its acronym, EMMA, E-M-M-A. But particularly now that we're focusing on hospitals that are facing some sort of financial crisis or other challenges arising out of COVID, you know, for those hospitals that are experiencing some level of financial difficulty, what, if any, disclosure obligations do those hospitals have if they also have bond instruments, municipal securities out in the market? So the same rules that David just described apply regardless of when a borrower is speaking to the market and in what circumstances the borrower is speaking to the market. The disclosure can't include material misstatements or omit material facts. So those same anti-fraud provisions have to be kept in mind anytime a borrower is talking to the market. And in circumstances like these, where we've got situations where hospitals are, are starting to see the effects of COVID or you know other impacts related to COVID. Yeah, there's lots of questions that come up. You know, when should a borrower talk to the market? What counts as talking to the market? You know, what information should be provided? If a borrower does talk to the market, what impact does that have on the, the borrower's obligations kind of going forward? Obviously, as David mentioned, Rule 15C212 does require the disclosure of certain events when they happen. And some of those events could be implicated by a situation like COVID. For example, 
Rule 15C212 requires that if a borrower fails to pay principal or interest on its bonds, it has to disclose that failure on EMA within 10 business days. If the borrower has to draw on their debt service reserves or tap a credit facility, they would have to disclose that on EMA. And, you know, worst case scenario, if a borrower files for bankruptcy, that's another event that has to be disclosed on EMA. But again, the more interesting questions come up when we're not quite there yet. None of the events described in 15C212 have happened yet. We're just starting to see blips on the radar related to COVID. What does a borrower do in that case? An interesting point, because I I think you're right. We've had a number of health systems that have, for the last seven to eight months, struggled with just managing day-to-day operations in the wake of of COVID-19 what that has meant for their ability to service patients as they traditionally have and get reimbursed for those services. So for the last several months, I know the folks, clients in the market we've been chatting with, it's just been a daily struggle to get a a hand around the management of the operations, much less assess their financial position. You know, now I think folks have a game plan operationally to respond to to COVID-19 in their communities and the markets they serve. Um, and they're beginning to feel the financial impact of what transpired earlier this year. So for those borrower health system organizations, when should they disclose information about any anticipated bumps in the road that they foresee that they might be expecting? So as I mentioned Rule 15C212 requires disclosure within 10 business days if certain events occur. So we'll we'll just set that aside and assume that that it, it hasn't gotten so bad yet that one of those events has happened. The question is, does a borrower make a voluntary filing on Emma? to kind of describe what's happened since their last quarterly posting, or do they include information in their their next quarterly posting that is maybe not required by their continuing disclosure agreement? Again, the rule does not require any quarterly information to be posted, but most hospitals continuing disclosure agreements do require quarterly information. It's just kind of what the industry and the investor market requires. So the question is, does a borrower go ahead and provide additional information that's not technically required in their next quarterly posting? But a borrower should really think hard about whether they want to make these voluntary disclosures because you know, for a few reasons. First of all, does posting any voluntary information require the borrower to continue updating that information in the future? And we would argue that yes, once a borrower posts information that is kind of above and beyond their continuing disclosure obligations, that they then have an obligation to continue to update that information going forward. And 
a borrower should also think about, do they have concrete information at this point that they can supply to the market? Is it all just speculative at this point or do they have concrete financial information, operating information that can be provided? You know, we obviously would not recommend that a borrower provide any sort of speculative information to the market. So a a borrower may just want to wait a little bit until things kind of firm up a little. You know, conversely, if information has been picked up in the press, that may encourage a borrower to post on Emma a little earlier than they were planning to, because we don't want to be in a situation where the press has information and it's kind of available to the general public, but the borrower has not posted the information on Emma for the investor marketplace. So those are just a couple of examples of things that a borrower would want to consider when deciding to post voluntary information kind of outside of the regular continuing disclosure process. And Ryan, your question is a, is a great one and, and timely one these days because you know we're all dealing with the you know COVID nineteen and its impacts and COVID nineteen the pandemic really has presented some significant disclosure challenges for borrowers and and the primary reason for that is it's frankly changing very rapidly you know we don't know where it's heading to in the fall for example the impacts with regard to finances were very different in the spring versus the summer when folks were able to start up some of their non-essential procedures again, and we don't know what's going to be happening if there's an uptick and that has to be delayed. Things are constantly shifting. Doing a voluntary uh, EMMA posting on COVID-19, as Amy said, you know, has the potential to raise a, a duty to update that. And I think it's a particularly acute here where things change so often from even month to month if you've posted something, you know, the, the summer was good. Things are hunky dory. We're back at, you know, a hundred well, plus percent of what we were doing before in terms of utilization and procedures and so forth. And then things fall off the cliff in October, for example, because we've seen upticks in, in the state or who knows what, what's happening. You've created a duty to, to get to the market and let them know that, you know, things have dramatically changed course for us. We're no longer at 106%. We're now at, at 65% again, or wherever you might, might land. And if you don't do that, you do have the potential for a securities fraud action on by bondholders who traded on market information you provided to the market that, you know, in the summer that everything was okay. And now it's not, and that's stale. And by, if you wait until, the quarterly disclosure period uh, to let folks know that the the market has changed on you that has the potential to be problematic and of course all of this is is in a backdrop there was a a release of a statement by the chairman of the corporate finance at the SEC basically urging companies to provide investors with as much information as practical when as it comes to the covid-19 pandemic and what they're what they are going through and so people have been trying to figure out what that means and how do we comply with that SEC statement. Does that mean we need to post something with respect to what's going on currently, which some health systems did do, or do we wait until our quarterly information is posted and we we go ahead and, and explain what's going on there? We've sort of taken the position that, A, you have to be very, very careful, and it probably, if you can, does 
call for waiting until your quarterly information is disclosed. But what that statement of the SEC said, it means that you can't post, for example, June 30 numbers or September 30 numbers that show things are back to normal and things are looking really, really good. You post those on September 30, you you probably have posted those, you know, maybe in the middle of November, and you know for a fact that October has fallen off the cliff and November is even worse. You can't just post that information without some sort of supplementary information explaining what's happened and the kind of direction of things as it comes to the pandemic. So there's a lot, a lot to think about when it comes to, you know, making disclosures at all to the market with respect to the pandemic and then how you layer in the pandemic when you're making disclosures about your financial information, even if it is is part of your annual disclosure or your quarterly disclosure. We definitely live in challenging disclosure times as it comes to COVID-19, and and there really is a lot to think about and consult with your your experts on when you go go and talk to David, David and Amy, you both have raised, I think, pretty important points about what the hospital's health system's obligations are and you know what the requirements are around talking or speaking to the market and primarily how that's done through the posting and dissemination of information and when to do it and to what extent that you do it on the mediums like Emma. Let, let me flip that on its head. What should a health system CFO do? And we have a lot of colleagues at Warburg that are placed as hospital CFOs across the country, and, and they've shared that on prior occasions, they would receive you know inquiries from investors around, or bondholders rather, on the financial status and strength of the, the organization as it related to the, those bond instruments that they were invested in. So what should a health system executive do if their phone rings or they get an inbound inquiry from a bondholder about the organization? Sure. You know, borrowers certainly are allowed to talk to investors when they call. We don't prohibit that. We, you know, none of the federal securities laws necessarily prohibit that. But there are a number of things to take in mind when it comes to talking to investors. You know, the risk of talking to investors individually really is the are a couple. Number one, there's a risk of giving some selective disclosure to an investor. And there's also the risk of providing either inaccurate or incomplete or misleading information to that individual investor. But those investors do call very frequently. And it's a very common question that we get. What do we recommend? Number one, we do recommend that when, as a health system or hospital, you have one person that speaks to investors. So if an investor calls any random person in treasury department or whatnot, they know who to direct an investor call to. So there is one person, maybe it's a CFO, the treasurer, compliance officer, whoever it is that understands the rules, understand what they can and cannot say to the investors and when to deflect questions and how, you know, really some experience about how to, how to handle investor relations in that regard. So as I mentioned, that person should really bone up on the rules and understand what has been publicly stated on Emma, as we talked about, or otherwise. And then, you know, what would be, you know, material non-public information because it hasn't been posted on Emma. The goal is not to provide any material non-public information to any individual investor. Frankly, investors don't want material non-public information because it does restrict their ability to trade, but they do want to understand some things. So as you talk to the investor, the, the goal is, is to stick to what is on Emma, what you have disclosed publicly. Well, what do you do? I often get the question, what do you do if 
the investor says, hey, you know, I've got a question and it would elicit material non-public information. And then another investor asks something similar. The best response there is to say, I, I understand your, your question. It is not publicly disclosed at this point in time. It sounds like an important question. We will address it on our next quarterly or annual filing so that the investor leaves satisfied knowing that their question eventually will be answered, which is good investor relations, but you don't end up with any material non-public information being given to one investor. What happens if you do let some material non-public information slip to an investor accidentally or otherwise? What you would want to do then is consider actually posting something on Emma so that the world has that and not just the one investor. As with any posting, you have to be very, very careful to, to make sure what you say is accurate and doesn't omit anything is complete. But that's what we would recommend you do if, if some material non-public information does slip to an individual investor. But hopefully with the procedures I outlined in place and the thought process, that, that would not happen. Amy, anything that I missed or to add on that? I think this did come up a lot in you know, March, April, May, that investors started calling hospital systems and asking what the the impact of COVID-19 and the resulting rules that had been implemented by various state governments, you know, what that impact had had. And I think that a lot of borrowers, because it was kind of outside the normal course of questions they were used to getting, they weren't sure how to respond. And I think that David's right. The best thing to do is to point an investor to information that's already been posted on Emma. But in situations like these, you know, if you get enough phone calls, that may be a pretty good indication that investors are all sort of wondering the same thing. And it might be time to put that information on Emma, even if it is kind of not time to report under your continuing disclosure agreement, it, it may be time to make a voluntary filing. So the, the interesting point here that I would like to see if you can both provide more light around. So some of our other panelists that um, were part of the, the webinar and are holding their own masterclass sessions talk about the importance of building trust with the bondholders and those other external stakeholder groups. And, you know, key to building trust in any relationship is fostering open and effective communication. So with the restrictions that we have around or that an institution has around not disclosing non-typical information, how do you balance those two competing interests there? The, the need to have open and effective communication with your bondholder group versus the limitations around what can and cannot be disclosed. And perhaps this is where the, the real point lies at. Is there a difference once you transition from a normal course disclosure event into some sort of event that brings you into technical or actual default on the instrument? Well, I think that you know the borrower's first and foremost obligation is compliance with the law. And I, you know, investors know that, you know, investors aren't looking to get information that, you know, gives them a leg up on other investors. They understand the legal framework that borrowers are working within. So I think that borrowers should 
you know, always have that in the back of their mind when responding to questions and providing disclosure in the market. As David mentioned, if there is a situation where information is provided kind of in that spirit of having effective dialogue with investors that hasn't been provided to all of the investors, then it it needs to be provided. Not immediately, but pretty quick after that information is provided. I think that that kind of accomplishes both tasks of both being, you know, compliant with the legal framework, but also having an effective and open dialogue with the investor community. And Ryan, I think the key concept to work with is the one I I mentioned before, and that is, you know, material non-public information. Investors probably are going to be asking you about things they saw in in the disclosure that you posted, because that's really often their starting point. And there's definitely going to be a balancing act on your part when it comes to, well, are you just elaborating on the information that you've already posted to a minor degree, or are you adding to that information by giving some material non-public information to the investor? And that's the line that you have to walk. It's not easy, frankly. I'm not going to say it is in in any way, but that's why you need an experienced individual who's talking to the investor so that they can think about the conversation they're having and understand whether they have crossed that line and, and try not to cross the line and what the line means and then what to do, as Amy said, if they do cross the line to make some sort of a posting. But that's the key Dividing marker really is material, not material. Thank you, David and Amy. And I, I promise we didn't plan this to our listeners, but I think you've you've helped us transition to that next point in the conversation, David. So let's assume that you're at a healthcare institution that has experienced a technical or an actual default, or you know you can see one forthcoming with the the trajectory of your financial strength of your organization. If that's the path that you're walking down as a organization, what sort of resources should you look to accumulate to prepare you for those set of activities and the the events that follow a, a technical or actual default on the instrument? Sure. So there are are going to be bumps in the road, if you will, for any any healthcare organization. And, and I think your question is, well, what do you do as those occur or you start to know that those occur? Most borrowers in the healthcare industry, as we've talked about, are required by their continued disclosure undertakings to provide updates to the market every, you know, every year and, and also every quarter. Those annual and quarterly uh, updates will indicate to the market when the financial picture really isn't looking so rosy or there are, are potential bumps in the road coming. And in a lot of ways, that's how you're supposed to speak to the market and they get that quarterly update and understand the direction that the health system is proceeding financially or otherwise. However, you know, if something more drastic happens during the fiscal quarter, the borrower may consider speaking to the market earlier than required by doing a voluntary filing on EMMA or providing some additional information in the quarterly report that's really on top of the information required to be disclosed by the continued disclosure undertaking the continuing disclosure undertaking is just that. It's the requirements that you have to give to the market, but you are permitted to have voluntary disclosures. And health systems and hospitals do have voluntary disclosures from time to time when things come up that they feel is important for the market to understand and they want the market to know them. For example, 
some changes in leadership may not be required under the continuous disclosure undertaking, but the health systems, lots of my clients feel that they should let folks know when a, a C-suite type individual has resigned or has been replaced and give the bio of that person being replaced. These are voluntary disclosures that the marketplace appreciates, and you really are, in a way, being a good corporate citizen by, by keeping people informed. You know, these voluntary disclosures, though, should be carefully considered since, you know, as we, we can discuss in more detail in a little bit, you know, they, as, and as Amy has mentioned, they may create a duty to continue to update that disclosure and make similar disclosures. So you'll want to make sure that you don't, you know, create that duty to the extent that you can. And there's some language that you can potentially add to your, your voluntary disclosure. You also want to keep in mind the you know, the anti-fraud provisions that we've talked about because you will be talking to the market and you need to be, you know, very carefully considering what you say, how you say it, and what is being communicated to not only create the duty, but also not misrepresent everything or omit something. Omissions are as important as misrepresentations. You can tell the market a few things, but if you haven't given them a key fact or a key additional piece of information to help them analyze what you're telling them, then that in and of itself, that omission can be very, very problematic. Of course, if you know an actual listed event occurs that is required under Rule 15212 in your continuing disclosure agreement, you have 10 business days to disclose that and, and you would you would need to I mean do that. so far, Ryan, we actually haven't had too many borrowers have a true covenant violation. There just hasn't been enough time that has passed yet. You know, most people's coverage is only calculated annually. We just haven't had a situation where enough enough time has gone by yet where somebody has actually defaulted on any of their bond covenants. And hopefully we won't have those situations, but time will tell, I suppose. So when, when your team is representing the borrower organization, when is a good point for a borrower that anticipates a technical or actual default to pick up the phone, make a call to their trusted advisors, David and Amy, and walk through issues in front of them? Is that you know, two weeks before the filing is due or is it you know months out? Where, where do you typically see yourselves be brought in and made a part of that team to help resolve or mediate issues? Yeah, Ryan, I think the answer, uh, the short answer is as soon as possible. Two weeks before would certainly be too late. As soon as a, a borrower thinks there is a problem or could potentially be a problem with some covenants under their you know, master denture or other bond and debt documents, the earlier you let the experts know, the earlier we can give advice that might frankly be able to head off the event of default. There are, in some cases, maneuvers, things you can do, ways of looking at things that can head off a covenant default, for example, uh, that you're going to fall below your debt service coverage. And you want to start considering what to do and how to do it to either prevent the event of default from happening at all, or if it's going to happen, to start to prepare for it to happen. You can start speaking with some of your, your debt providers. Not every piece of debt is out there in the public. There are some you know, privately placed or some directly placed bank loans and things like that that uh, you may need to start talking with those individuals who have tighter covenants than the public debt does and trying to head off defaults at that level because there are, are going to be layers, right? There might be some of those stricter covenants that you're going to default on, but not the less strict ones that are applied to the public debt. And if you can talk to your bank about maybe a waiver or a, a deferral of that covenant, things of that nature, 
that might help ward off the default or at least get you in a better position to deal with it. And, you know, the sooner you start having those conversations, definitely the better. You know, banks can sometimes be a little bureaucratic in the in getting those types of approvals, and it just takes them time. They're often, if not almost always, willing to work with you. They they don't want to default almost as much as you don't, as long as they don't believe Armageddon is near, of course, but they are willing to work with you. It, but it does take time for them to go through their own internal hoops and get to a point where they can come back with a proposal for you uh, with regard to what they want to do because of the default or how they want to handle it. So as I said, the short answer is the sooner, the better in, in every instance. And, and if, you know, let's face it, if you are going to default and have to disclose that to the market, that is going to be kind of one of the most important disclosures as an organization that you ever make. And you know that it's not going to be a team of, you know, two people that have to read and be comfortable with that disclosure. It's probably going to be a, a team of a lot more people. And you want to give people time to, you know, help craft the disclosure and, you know, everybody on the same page as to what that's going to say, you know, develop any press releases around it that you feel needs to go out into the public. You've got to give people time to really all be on the same page on the messaging. I can give you a real world example using no names and trying to keep it as generic as possible. But we had a client that, for accounting reasons, knew they were going to be delayed in releasing their annual audit, which was actually a a covenant default under the bond documents and unfortunately also um, presents problems with regard to your continued disclosure agreement. So early on, we put together a team, they put together a team, not only of their lawyers, but also their financial advisor and their investment banker to start considering the ramifications of what that means, how we deal with it when it comes to the the various constituents that had the covenant to actually receive those annual financial informations, that being you know the, the master trustee in some of the banks, and then also just how to present that to the market, which is where the financial advisor and the investment banker came in handy because it's not just a covenant violation, but is, as I think Amy alluded to, it's also an, an investor relations situation because you want you know, you want your best foot forward. You want everybody to understand what you're doing, why it's happening, that you're working as hard as you can on the situation. You know, there are a lot of different layers that you need to consider. It's not just a, a covenant default, which is dramatic and drastic and not good, but you need to consider how this, you know, is is communicated to the market and very carefully craft all of that. And you want your team advisors all working together, rowing in the same direction, giving you the right advice and getting it done completely and accurately. That is all very helpful. So it, it sounds like Amy and David, in addition to you know, folks like yourself who provide, you know, the expert legal counsel around the security instrument and reporting obligations and and what has to be done in the wake of a technical or actual default. You've also equipping that team with communication specialists, financial advisors, potentially investment bankers. It's a broad group to come around and, and develop the right strategy and approach to remedy the situation. Curious, and I think this may be really helpful for our listeners today, many of who are hospital executives, what role does the hospital's CEO, CFO, or other executive leaders play in one of these scenarios? I think that probably varies 
from organization to organization. We have hospital systems that are you know huge where the CEO and the CFO may not be kind of hands on with respect to the day-to-day you know bond compliance. And then we have other clients that are much smaller where it is the CEO and the CFO that are dealing with the kind of bonds day to day. I would expect, however, that in a situation where you have a kind of a drastic situation that has occurred that, you know, obviously the the C-suite would be involved in at least putting the final approval on whatever is disclosed to the market. But I I do think it probably varies. David, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, these are are important issues and definitely need the proper attention within the organization. But a lot of it depends, frankly, on what is the issue? How how serious is it? How how elevated does it need to be made? And and what is the organizational structure itself for making those kinds of decisions and who has the authority and who does not and so forth? You know, there are some instances where you absolutely positively have to have your CEO weighing in on on them because they are very serious of nature and there are others that could be handled differently. And and it just depends really on the size, depth, breadth of the the management team and who who does what in a lot of ways. So one final question, and then um, we'll wrap up for today. So what do you both see as the top two to three actions that a hospital or health system borrower should take? to ensure compliance if they're you know, approaching a technical or actual default, to ensure compliance with their bond instruments obligations, and then ensure their longer-term financial viability? Sure. The great question. I, I, you know, there are a couple of things that we, we in particular would recommend, and we, we've even alluded to some of them in, in the responses, but it is important to adopt, we believe, formal written policies and, and procedures when it comes to the preparation and filing of information that you're going to be delivering to the market. And that, of course, includes some of the voluntary disclosures that we've talked about, because those are as important as your annual and quarterly when it comes to speaking to the market and the liabilities that you may face for doing so. You know, among other things, we we think these procedures should identify which individuals are authorized to speak, you know, on behalf of the borrowers I mentioned before, and how to address those one-off calls from investors, because how you handle those also will be very, very important to making sure that your disclosure is is done right, if you will. Another important issue that we didn't touch on too much, but when, when a, a borrower posts things on its website, that is considered speaking to the market. And we would highly suggest having you know protocols for posting information to your website, which, which would include a review by an individual that's well-versed in what can and, and should not be posted on a website and you know, make sure though anything that's posted in particular financial information gets that detailed review, just like it would get when you're posting it on, on Emma. When you when you do issue press releases or or post things on your website, you really have to be very careful about what what you're saying and what you're posting because the SEC has definitely taken the position that you know posting things on your website is speaking to the market. There have been investors or, or borrowers, I'm sorry, that have gotten in trouble when posting things on their on their website. A great way to try to be careful with that is to have a you know on your website an investor relations page that is there for the purpose of disclosing you know any any documents or statements financial or otherwise that may be relevant to the investor 
and that you carefully vet because you you can't get uh, access to that investor page without going through the right protocols and and the right people for that matter to make sure that the information has been carefully prepared and in a way because it may be relied on by a borrower and there are certain statements that can be added that can help to basically CYA, if you will, so that you're, you're saying you, you should not be relying on this in connection with the purchase or sale of any securities. Go look at Emma. But if you know you want to be very, very careful with regard to the, the website and the any kind of additional information you might might be doing vis-a-vis a, a press release. And I think, of course, and, and this is probably a, a self-serving a statement as I'm ever going to make, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I do think you want to call your legal counsel when it, when you have questions, either, you know, your, your regular counsel or, uh, you know, the borrower's counsel that helps you with, with your bond offerings or your bond counsel, but somebody who, who does understand the ramifications of, of what you're going to do and can really help navigate the, the legal landscape of, of your disclosures and and your website and and things that you're doing, you know, when you're receiving, you know, questions from from investors and whatnot, you know, we're we're happy to advise and, and help. And you know, usually doesn't take a lot of time to to tell you, you know, the direction that you should or shouldn't be going when you're disclosing information, you know, to the market. And you know, we can even help draft that disclosure. We do that all the time for our various clients, and it is important, as I mentioned, to carefully talk to the market and legal advice definitely is a part of that. So even though it's a, a little bit of a self-serving statement, I do think it's an important one because you, you never know exactly how uh, what you want to say is going to impact your legal liabilities, your disclosure risks and so forth. And, and just staying on top of that as part of your protocols and, and how you handle things is, is very, very important. Yeah. And chances are good we're getting the exact same question from many of your peers. So we can provide kind of a big picture advice on, you know, what we're seeing and what people are doing, you know, kind of they're in the exact same situation. Thank you both for your time. And you've really been very generous with it and very thoughtful with your answers here. I'm confident that our listeners have and will continue to benefit from your your insights, thoughts, and suggestions that you provided. Hopefully, they can take a few things back to their own hospital or health system and use those things to the advantage of the organization as folks continue to manage through this current crisis. Listener, if you have any questions or want to learn more from David or Amy and how they might help you in your situation, I encourage you to reach out and get in contact with either of them. The contact details listed in this presentation, for those of you that are listening to today's conversation, David can be reached by email at dkates, D-K-A-T-E-S at Chapman, C-H-A-P-M-A-N.com. Amy can be reached at Curran, C-U-R-R-A-N at Chapman.com. I'm Ryan Sprinkle. If you'd like to reach me, you can reach me at C-R-Sprinkle at WarbirdCP.com. This concludes our session today with our guests, uh, David and Amy from Chapman and Cutler. On behalf of David, Amy, and Warbird, we appreciate you listening. Thank you for joining this special Conversations with the Marketplace Masterclass session provided to you as part of Warbird Consulting Partners' educational series for hospitals and healthcare systems. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations with the Marketplace. 
If you have any questions about this topic, suggestions for a future podcast, or questions in general, please email us at jbain at warbirdcp.com. That's J-B-E-H-N at W-A-R-B-I-R-D-C-P dot com. Our goal is to provide content that is meaningful and represents your needs. Please visit our website at www.warbirdconsulting.com, where you can contact us directly, receive industry updates, and gain access to on-demand webinars. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and leave us a five-star review. We hope this podcast provided new perspectives and most importantly, prompts you to take action. We want Conversations with the Marketplace to be your go-to healthcare financial management podcast. Please come back soon and join us for another episode in our educational series for hospitals and hospital systems. Until then, stay well, be entrepreneurial, and take action.